This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. this episode, we take an in-depth look at progress on vaccines. We look at whether vaccines are likely to save the world from COVID-19. Linda Van Tilburg of Biz News interviews Professor William Hazeltine, a Harvard professor who has played an important role in developing treatments for HIV-AIDS, for his insights on how we can fight coronavirus. And we interview Dr. Sean Barnabas of Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. The university is part of a large international research trial testing one of the most promising COVID-19 vaccine candidates currently available. This is a vaccine which was developed by Oxford University in the UK and is currently being tested at seven sites in South Africa along with the UK and Brazil. The study is being led by Professor Shabi Amadi of the University of the Witwatersrand. Also coming up on this show, we hear about how speaking too loudly and facilitate the spread of COVID-19. First, the COVID-19 news making world headlines. People who have been infected with both the flu and COVID-19 face a serious increase to their risk of death. That's the warning from Public Health England. A study has shown that those infected with both viruses during the first peak of the pandemic had a significantly higher rate of death. Overall, 43% of those with co-infection died, compared to 27% of those who tested positive for the virus that causes COVID-19. Harvard University's undergraduate enrollment fell almost 20% from last year as the COVID-19 pandemic spurred some students to stay away. The Ivy League school has just under 5,400 undergraduates at Harvard College for the fall semester, This is compared with 6,800 as of October 2019. All instruction at Harvard College is remote for the 2020-2021 academic year. Johnson & Johnson is the fourth vaccine maker to move its candidate into late-stage human studies in the US. Bloomberg reports that if enrollment goes as expected, the testing could yield results as soon as year-end, allowing the company to seek emergency authorization in early 2021. It quotes Johnson & Johnson Chief Scientific Officer Paul Stoffels. Singapore has eased office restrictions as the virus ebbs. Though working from home remains a default, the city-state will allow office staff to return up to half their working time, with no more than half of such employees at the workplace at once, the health ministry said on Wednesday. Singapore will also allow events within the workplace, like conferences, seminars and corporate retreats, for as many as 50 people. The euro area's economic recovery has stalled as consumers fret about the resurgence of the virus and governments reinstate some restrictions. IHS Markets Composite Purchasing Managers Index unexpectedly fell to 50.1 from 51.9 in August. This is far worse than economists had forecast. The weakness is a reminder that while the initial rebound from lockdowns proved stronger than anticipated, That's little guide to the longer term. Activity is still below pre-crisis levels. A full recovery is a long way off, 
and a number of sectors remain in trouble. Banks from Goldman Sachs to HSBC have hit pause on plans to return workers in London after Boris Johnson appealed to Britons to work from home. Goldman Sachs is encouraging its London employees to go back to working remotely if possible. The United Nations World Tourism Organization has warned that a recovery for the tourism industry could take up to four years. Direct tourism jobs at risk number 100 million to 120 million with a projected loss of international visitor spending of anywhere between 910 billion US dollars to 1.2 trillion US dollars. Bloomberg quotes Alessandra Piranti, a director at the organization who was speaking at a European Parliament hearing in Brussels. Zambia has become the first African country to ask bondholders for relief since the onset of the coronavirus. This comes as nations from Angola to Kenya battle to cope with the economic hit from the pandemic. Zambia says it needs breathing space to plan a debt restructuring and has asked holders of its three euro bonds totaling $3 billion to defer interest payments until April. India's death toll has topped 90,000. India trails only the US and Brazil in COVID-19 deaths, while its 5.6 million confirmed cases are surpassed only by the US's tally of almost 6.9 million infections. As of late Wednesday, the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre said that 16,118 deaths were recorded in South Africa and 663,282 cases have been reported in the country. South Africa is number nine in the list of the world's worst-hit countries. Coming up, Linda van Tilburg speaks to Professor William Hazeltine, the Harvard professor who has played an important role in developing treatments for HIV. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. We all hope that vaccines will be the silver bullet for COVID-19, but Professor William Hasseldine, the Harvard professor who played a crucial role in developing HIV-AIDS treatment regimes, says that vaccines are likely to be only partially effective against the novel coronavirus. Speaking from New York to Biz News, Professor Hasseldine said there were many lessons to be learned in what he called this deadly episode of the historic battle of man versus microbe from the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Developing a vaccine for HIV-AIDS has been very difficult, but a cocktail of treatments and a pre-exposure prophylactis has proven to be very effective weapons in the treatment and prevention of HIV-AIDS. Professor Hasseltine said he did not only doubt whether vaccines would ever be fully effective, he also thought that they might not protect for very long. He was quick to add that this was not the case for other vaccines that had saved so many lives. The professor says the COVID-19 genie can be put back in the bottle with treatments, simple health measures and a rapid COVID-19 test that has already been rolled out in some countries like India. You know, I would say the question of whether a vaccine will work for covid my guess it is going to work partially. You're going to get partial. This is my guess. It's just a, it's a guess. But the vaccines, because your body does clear this virus, but it doesn't last for very long. So my guess is that some people are going to be protected, whether it's half or a third or more, we don't know. But I don't think they're going to be protected for very long because nature doesn't protect you for very long. Maybe it allows you to get rid of the virus so you don't go along with a cold the whole time. 
but those same viruses come right back. So I think vaccines can be partially effective. And so when I say that while we're developing a vaccine and putting our hopes in that, while we're developing these drugs and putting our hopes there, let's not neglect simple public health measures using the tools we have now. We have a splendid new tool we didn't have before, which is a rapid, cheap antibody test. And how cheap should it be? It should be 50 cents, no more than 50 cents each. Why? That's the price Abbott Laboratories gave to Egypt for a rapid antibody test for 100 million people for hepatitis C. It doesn't cost very much to make these things. You can maybe even make it less than 50 cents each if it's just a strip of paper that you spit on. And that would stop this pandemic in a way that's compatible with the way we think, the way we live, and what we think about our freedom. Can I just ask you, how would a country like South Africa do it? Because maybe they don't have the test from Egypt. I'm not sure what they have. A similar strategy? Well, the rapid tests are going to be, you know, everybody's going to have these rapid tests. You know, I know a company that's already shipped 75 million overseas because they're not approved here in the United States. These tests are being made in China. They're being made in India. India is already using these rapid antigen tests as a basic screening. It's a saliva-based antigen test. That's their basic screening tool. So these are coming very soon. There's a lot of things that are going to happen. It may not happen in time for the election, but they're going to happen in time for us to put an end to this pandemic over the I, My guess is two to three years. We're in this for a long time, and it's going to take a long time for technologies to diffuse. But absent an effective vaccine, we can put this genie back in its bottle. Oh. We did it with AIDS, not completely, but we've certainly reduced it dramatically. And if we were a little more diligent, could probably reduce it even further, HIV AIDS. HIV AIDS is a little bit different because it is sexually transmitted, it's transmitted by drug users. Those are more difficult uh, behaviors to uh, control than just simply putting on a mask and keeping some social distance. How far are we on the path of developing these kind of therapies for COVID-19? We are very far along from a fundamental science point of view and even a clinical development point of view. There are a number of potent monoclonal antibodies that have been developed, I would say, by my guess, a hundred different labs around the world. There are several that are in clinical trials. Some are advanced clinical trials. The other day, Lilly announced one. Uh, Regeneron has announced that they have uh, antibodies. I've talked to a number of uh, other groups that have very effective, high, very potent antibodies. And there's some other techniques, too, using the uh, receptor as a decoy and making it potent. So there's a number of approaches as well as chemicals. There are plenty of chemicals that are being developed for SARS and MERS that with very modest uh, modifications for SARS-CoV-2 that are coming along. Now, the first use of those will be for treatment, somebody who's sick. But the problem with that is this is a very complicated disease. You get infected, you have a virus replicating in you for maybe 10 days. But after that, there's very little virus and antiviral drugs aren't going to work but the disease goes through three or four different phases for a month. You get a cytokine storm, you get hypercoagulation, you get rampant multi-system inflammatory that can go on for at least a month. And if you try to treat with antiviral drugs like remdesivir, it doesn't work at all because the virus isn't there anymore. 
It's almost like getting hit by radiation and saying, we're going to give you a radiation barrier after you've already been hit. It doesn't work. So there's a short window. And the problem is the way we're diagnosing this, we don't diagnose people the moment they get infected. We diagnose them three or four days. And then it takes us three or four more days to get them into a space where you would treat them. And by that time, the virus is almost gone. And so antiviral drugs are having a heck of a time. That's why convalescent anti-serum, remdesivir, very tiny effects, if anything at all, in stopping you once you've been infected. I have much greater hopes for these drugs or protecting healthcare workers or protecting people who are infected. Let me give you a very positive story along these lines. Probably know about Tamiflu. You get the flu, you pop a Tamiflu, and you may save a day of being really feeling lousy. There's another drug that's come along called Zofluza. But Shinogi developed it, and I believe that uh, Genentech is selling it in the U.S. That's Roche. So this drug works. Again, it's a wonderful piece of scientific work. It inhibits something called cap snatching, a nasty trick that the flu virus has to get itself replicated. It steals a little piece of your messenger RNAs. This drug, Zofluza, inhibits that. Last year, the Japanese did a brilliant study to see whether that drug would prevent people from being infected by flu. So they studied households in which somebody came in with a flu, and they either gave or didn't give a, a single pill to the other people in the house. And they dropped the infection rate by 80%, from 13, a little bit over 13% to a little bit under 2% on average. 80% drop. So in this flu season, I'm recommending everybody take a flu shot and stock up on Zofluza or another drug. The technical name is Biloxivir. But that's the idea. The reason I mentioned that, that's the idea for this. Wouldn't it be great if somebody in your household was infected and tested positive, if you could take a pill and prevent yourself from getting infected? That's really possible. We can do that. And science can deliver on that. And I think those drugs that are being developed for therapy have a very good use for prophylaxis. And the reason I mention households rather than healthcare workers is it turns out that most people who get in the hospital aren't really that infectious. And most of the infections that occur in hospital workers occur outside of the hospital. In the hospital, they're pretty protected. It's households like in the Japanese study. So I hope your listeners take away the message. Flu shot plus baloxavir. Flu shot, I'm for vaccines. Baloxavir, I am for antiviral drugs as prophylaxis. And I think we eventually may get to antiviral drugs for coronaviruses sooner than later. When can you, when do you think we'll have them? Um, certainly by this time next year. Next, Dr. Sean Barnabas of Stellenbosch University speaks to Linda van Tilburg of BizNews about the vaccine trial in South Africa. 
The vaccine developed by the University of Oxford and pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca that is used in human trials in South Africa is now also being rolled out by the University of Stellenbosch at Tigerberg Hospital. This is the vaccine that has been in the front of the pack from day one of vaccines that are being developed around the world at eye-watering speed. Globally, more than 18,000 have received the Oxford vaccine. The trials were suspended worldwide earlier this month when one of the volunteers had a serious adverse reaction. The clinical trials were resumed on the 12th of September. Although the suspension was described as routine by AstraZeneca, the bump in the road that the vaccine hit has tempered some of the optimistic predictions that a vaccine for COVID-19 would allow all of us to resume our lives by Christmas. It has also raised concerns about the safety of the vaccine. Dr. Sean Barnabas of Stellenbosch University, who is leading the Tigerberg trial site in Cape Town, told Business that the Oxford vaccine and its effects were closely monitored. And here's the bad news. He thinks South Africa will probably have a second peak of COVID-19. Stellenbosch is one of seven sites in South Africa that is involved in the trialing of the vaccine was developed at the University of Oxford that in South Africa has been sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with Shabir Mahdi at WITS as the national PI. And the study in South Africa plans to enroll about 2,000, approximately 2,000 participants. And it's a phase one, two study. So it's going to look at safety and immunogenicity in participants over a year to see whether after they received two doses of the vaccine, initially to see whether there's any immunological signal, so there's any change in the immunology of the of the white blood cells that found in the blood, and then also because it's a, a vaccine trial at a year to see whether there's anyone who whether they get sick or not. So, how many people would be in this trial? At Stellenbosch, we're aiming to enrol about 200, and they are between the ages of 18 and 65. There were some issues with the human trials first in the UK where somebody got ill and now I've just seen that human trials of the Oxford vaccine are facing delays in the US after participants suffered a rare neurological condition. So are you worried about some of the hiccups in this process? No, so I think because vaccine trials by their nature enroll thousands of participants, the chances of something happening to someone who's on the study just by sheer coincidence is fairly high. So someone who's had the vaccine could walk out the door and get run over by a car, and which has got nothing to do with the study, but is still considered an adverse event. So because of the nature of COVID and the rapidity in which the vaccines have been attempted to be developed, normally these studies would take a lot longer to run, but we're trying to do it on a shorter time scale and because it's under a short time scale the level of monitoring is a lot more intense so we have to report to the regulatory authorities in South UK a lot more frequently than we would for the other study so for this study we have to report or Shabir has to report every two weeks to the South African regulatory authorities about any possible adverse events that have happened and because the study's initially just been done in three countries in South Africa, Brazil and in the UK there is a, a national coordinating centre that is recording all the adverse events. What happened now, there's an adverse event in the United Kingdom that resulted in a global pause to so all the sites all over the world, even though our populations are not the same. 
stopped until it was determined that it was safe to continue with the study. So this study, although it's being done under a quicker scale than we would normally, is actually, I think, relatively safe because of the really intense safety monitoring that's happening in the study. It's a an untested product. And so one of the reasons why it's not being rolled out to the whole world is because we need to show definitively that it's safe. But the study results that have been published thus far look encouraging. And the phase one results from the UK were published about a month ago in The Lancet. And they two, two things that you look at are safety and immunogenicity. And the safety data from the UK was, was pretty good. And the immunogenicity data was also encouraging. So we don't know definitively, and that's why we're doing a study. But from what we know thus far, it seems like it's a relatively good product and it's safe to use. I think what people are worried about is pretty good, good enough. If there are cases that have had adverse effects, mm. AstraZeneca said in the UK, yes, there was yeah. other reasons why this woman became ill. Do you understand that some people might not be confident to say, but it's not been tested on animals and how do we know it's really safe? No, there were some animal studies that were done. And I'm not sure the, where the data was published. So I agree. I mean, so one of the reasons we do a study in phases is to look at the safety initially, because there's no point in developing a vaccine that works if it causes other unintended consequences. And I think the fact that the study is being run very, very carefully with a huge amount of independent monitoring, you must remember that the Adverse events that are evaluated are evaluated by an independent monitoring committee. And so it's not up to anyone who's involved in the study to decide on whether or not there's, it's related or connects to the vaccine or not. It's, it is done independently. And that decision on whether to continue the study or not is made by the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Board. And so I think there are uh, as many safeguards built into the study as you could practically hope for but at the same time allowing the science to progress i mean all vaccines when they're initially developed go through phase one two and three studies and at each level of study there's an element of risk involved and there's always going to be a possibility that a vaccine could have an unintended adverse outcome um, which is why we need to continue monitoring quite carefully to make sure that there aren't any adverse events that are actually associated with getting the vaccine. So at the moment, the, the jury is still out, but we are doing these studies in order to establish as best we can whether or not the vaccine is safe to use. But it seems from the data that's available and the numbers of people, so thousands of people have already been enrolled in the study and have been vaccinated. And from those people, we had no abnormal safety signal, which make, would make me concerned that we should stop vaccinating people. And the, the, this is not just sort of anecdotal evidence. It's been looked at on a systematic level by independent people. So at this stage, I think we're fairly confident that the safety of participants in the study is, is everyone's primary outcome, is everyone's primary concern and that it doesn't seem to be affecting people adversely to take part in the study. Do you find it easy to get volunteers to participate in the trials? Yes, I, I think lots of different infectious conditions. If you've been infected once, it helps your body develop natural immunity. And we're not sure whether that will be true for COVID or not. And because we 
there's uncertainty of whether being infected ones will actually allow you to be protected or not. The method of actually resuming life as close to normal as we could is by finding a safe and effective vaccine. And I think people recognize that vaccines are a, a really good way that we could allow the world to resume life as we maybe not as we used to know it before, but it's something as close to that as possible. It's been quite easy to enroll people in, on the study, and we're hoping that it'll still be that in the future. That's just way to do things. One of the reasons why they wanted to do trials in South Africa is because we think that the population might react differently to the vaccine. Have you seen any differences in the data that's coming out in South Africa compared to what is seen in Europe or elsewhere in the world? So the way vaccine trials are done is that you want to do a wider spread of population as possible so it has good external validity and it's generalizable to a normal uh, wide population. And I think sort of the reasons the study is being done in South Africa, I mean, one of the big reasons is Shabir Mahdi, who's the professor of vaccinology at WITS and is the national PI, got a, a long-standing relationship with the people that developed the vaccine and is a really excellent vaccine researcher. And I think one of the advantages that South Africa has is, is we are quite good at doing infectious diseases research and quite good at, as, as pediatricians, which Shabir is and most of the people on these studies are, are pediatricians, well, not most, but there are lots of pediatrician studies we're used to doing vaccine trials. And I think that's one of the strengths of the South African research environment is we have a fairly well-developed infectious diseases environment and lots, and because of our history of HIV and TB and being involved in other vaccine development, that's one of the strengths that we have that will allow these studies to, to take place in the country. Normally, it's easier to test a vaccine when the numbers of cases are high, but the numbers are going down in South Africa. Does that make it more difficult for you? It does. In places like Europe, they've had their first peak and now their second peak. In South Africa, the numbers have dropped quite dramatically. Whether or not we get a second peak remains to be seen, but it's probable we will have a second peak in South Africa because we have been quite badly affected by COVID. There's not any sort of real biological reason I've seen why that shouldn't be happening. But what you want, essentially, you want to look at immunological endpoints. So you want to look at sort of different blood cells to see whether the vaccines had a response or not. But the best way of seeing whether the vaccine works is to see, look, the two groups have either received the placebo or the vaccine and see who got sick and who didn't. And that's best, as you said, it's easiest to do if you've got a high number of people becoming infected and you compare the arms quite quickly. So it is more challenging now that the numbers have gone down because we won't be able to get an answer as quickly as possible. But uh, in the bigger context of things in South Africa, we, I think under the levels of lockdown we were previously at, it's obviously affected the economy and the people's lives quite a lot. And so I think everyone is grateful that the number of infections has come down so that people can actually get on with earning a living and continuing with uh, sort of other life activities that they need to. So while it is frustrating as a researcher that you'd like the numbers to be higher, but you know, as a as sort of a human being and as a good responsible citizen, you are happy that the environment's actually improved because people do need to go back to work and kids need to go back to school. And there are other things that are important that you need to take into account. But you're right, it will be harder to get a 
uh, resolved as quickly because we don't have as many infections as we were getting previously. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Coming up, our partner Bloomberg looks at whether speaking too loudly can spread the deadly COVID virus. We've heard there are many things we can do to reduce the spread of the coronavirus. Staying six feet away from someone else, washing our hands, and wearing a mask. But there's something else we can also do. Talk less. Speaking is a powerful generator of aerosols, the fine particles emitted from our mouths that can harbor the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And potentially linger for hours in poorly ventilated spaces. Turns out, shutting up can help shut those particles down. And as Bloomberg senior editor Jason Gale found out, if you must speak, it's safer if you do it softly. Aerosols are tiny particles emitted from our respiratory tracts that can stay aloft in ambient air for hours. There's been some debate about the role virus-laden airborne particles play in transmitting the COVID-19 causing coronavirus. So I asked Bill Ristenpart, a professor of chemical engineering at the University of California, Davis, what we know about aerosols in the spread of the pandemic disease. That's a complicated question, of course, right? Because the contact tracing we've heard so much about, that, that tells you who you likely got it from and when you likely got it, but it does not tell you by itself how you got it, whether that was through a handshake or through them coughing in your face or just talking and releasing infectious aerosol particles that travel across the room. But the indirect evidence implicating aerosols is mounting. The very first one that opened a lot of people's eyes was that uh, outbreak of the choir practice up in Washington State. I think it was like 87% of the people who attended got infected just during a two and a half hour choir practice. And you know, choir practice that's associated with loud vocalization. Then there was the New Year's lunch in a restaurant in Guangzhou, China, in which 10 diners came down with COVID-19. They had video evidence, which was really great. They showed that some of the people who got infected did not directly interact with the index case, except by virtue of the fact they're sharing the same air. Um, so they like did not you know, talk, they didn't uh, face-to-face and all that. So that's another piece of evidence for some type of long-range Uh, transmission and the expiratory particles is the prime suspect. Then there have been outbreaks in bars, a call centre and a cafe in South Korea and a bus in China. They've all focused attention on potentially infectious particles emitted from the respiratory tract. I asked Bill, how are these produced? There's at least three modes of respiratory droplet or respiratory particle uh, generation. You know, sometimes you're, you're talking and you see little drops of fluid come out. That's the so-called oral mode, and that's mostly saliva. Um, it's an old-fashioned word, a spittle. Those, those droplets, if you can feel them hit, hitting somebody or if you can see them, relatively speaking, they're huge, way bigger than, like, say, 50 microns. So they're like big boulders, basically. And that's just one mode. The other two modes refer to much smaller particles that you can't see with the naked eye. One of them comes from the capillaries that line the bronchioles in the far reaches of the lungs. When you exhale and you squeeze everything down your lungs, these little capillaries come together, uh, kind of pinch together, and then you inhale and they expand. And there's respiratory fluid lining those. And so when you do that in in an expanse, you have a little fluid film that kind of pinches off and leaves little satellite droplets or daughter droplets that are now exhaled uh, with your air. 
Bill says these particles are about one micron in diameter. You know, I don't have much hair, but a, a, a typical human hair is about 100 microns. So it's 100 times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. And so just breathing releases some of those. The other, the, the third and final mode is the laryngeal mode. So at the vocal cords. So when somebody says, ah, what's actually happening is you have these like little uh, vocal cords that are opening and shutting at the frequency of your, your pitch, right? So my, I have kind of a deep voice. It's about 120 hertz. That means when I'm saying, ah, literally it's going like this 120 times a second. And these also have fluid uh, lining them. I should add here that Bill's lab has two high-speed cameras that can capture images at more than 100,000 frames per second. He also has various optical and laser systems for visualizing the micro droplets that are created when we speak. So right now, as I've been talking, I've been emitting particles out in the, in the room right in front of me. And even though they're really tiny, too tiny to see, they're huge compared to the virus. So the virus can very happily be carried along in these micron scale. So you have like little, little tiny bits of snot, you know, basically floating around in the air that could be carrying the virus. But Bill's research has shown that certain things can vary the emission of expiratory particles. Um, we found that speaking uh, releases much more than breathing. And we went even further. And what we showed is that like how many particles are emitted during speech is a very strong function of how loud you are. So if you speak really loud, you emit a ton, oh, way more than if, than if you're quiet, if you whisper. And some folks just emit a lot of particles, Bill says. Some people are super emitters. So for whatever reason, um, some individuals, when they talk, just emit an order of magnitude more, you know, a factor of 10 more than other people. And Bill says when some people cough, for whatever reason, way more comes out. But are these super emitters super spreaders of the coronavirus? That's a very challenging hypothesis to test post facto uh, from an outbreak. But it's definitely a, a hypothesis that warrants more investigation. If I was the virus and trying to infect as many people, I'd want a, a super emitter who also was a super grower of the virus, or like the virus was very successful. So you had very high uh, viral concentrations. And then I'd make sure if I was a virus again, that I didn't make the person symptomatic. So they'd look very healthy. And I'd have them go to a bar or a choir practice and have them sing and just vocalize as much as possible for a very long time. And I'd also tell the people to shut off the ventilation. Uh, so, <laughs> so that, you know, get the airborne viral concentration as high as possible. Bill also found that saying certain words is associated with more particles emitted. Plosives like papa produce more than fricatives like fuffa, but in general, it was less important. Uh, again, if I, was, if I was a virus, I wouldn't care so much about what the word you're saying is. I would want to be in somebody who's saying it loudly, right? So in other words, minor changes in how loud you're articulating swamp out the differences in what you're articulating. Does this mean people should be quiet for the sake of public health? I was advocating to some journalists who interviewed me back in April, and I said, I think we should start thinking about recommending people uh, don't talk so much, uh, especially in high-risk environments like hospital waiting rooms. Back then, the reporters looked at me like I was crazy, but like, I, think, I think there is great merit to that. Now in September, that recommendation is sounding kind of sensible. We know that maintaining a physical distance, wearing a face mask, and thorough hand-washing all help to reduce the risk of spreading the coronavirus. But none is fail-safe. It's doing them all together and quietly that offers the best chance at driving the pandemic into submission. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. And that brings you Inside COVID-19 to a close. Until next time. 
This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.